Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now and show us something of yourself. And please move us to respond in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was watching a movie the other day in which somebody approached a teenager's bedroom and uh, the door to the teenager's bedroom looked as you might imagine it to have looked. Uh, there were extra locks on the door and there were signs on the door saying keep out and do not disturb and private and enter at your own risk, etc. Perhaps people who've had teenagers or people who've been teenagers uh, have seen something of that desire for a private space where no one else is allowed to come. Inside the room might be chaos and stuff everywhere and yet from time to time there'll be a bellowing from within the room. Who has been in my room? With some teenagers, uh, not all, their privacy is important because it's part of the independence that they are asserting so desperately. But it's not only teenagers who guard their independence. We all might have parts of our lives or parts of ourselves that we reserve for ourselves. And no one really likes others interfering or trying to control those parts. Billy Joel exp expressed it pretty clearly in his song, My Life. I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. Uh, I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Go ahead with your own life, leave me alone. Often it's uh, that sentiment that's the reason that people don't want to consider becoming Christians. Uh, they don't want God or the church telling them how to live or taking over their life. Go ahead with your own life, leave me alone. In his autobiography, C.S. Lewis described it like this for himself. He said, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a sort of transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. So in other words, he didn't want to surrender his own space, his own life to God, the transcendental interferer. It may be that uh, you're watching this and you haven't come to terms yourself with that. You're holding God out of your life in some sense. It's your life. Why does God have to interfere? Or then again, maybe you've already surrendered and become a Christian. But even we Christians might have parts of ourselves or our lives which we sort of fence off from God. That ambition of mine is mine and mine only. That relationship is mine and mine only. Uh, that little pleasure is mine. God can have the rest, but that one still belongs to me. Maybe we let God control our lives to some extent, but if it gets too serious or costly, uh, perhaps we take control back and say, 
thanks God, I better take it from here on this one. So the question today, why should humans welcome God into our lives? And why should we remove the keep out signs on every aspect of ourselves and our lives? The bottom line is that it's because of who God is that we should welcome him in. Psalm 139 gives us one of the most profound pictures in the Bible of who God is in relation to us. As you'll see from uh, my outline of this psalm, we should welcome God because there are no secrets from God. There is no escape from God. There is no independence from God. And so there should be no opposition to God. This is one of the great psalms because it expresses incredibly profound theology, but not in some abstract sort of way about God. Rather, this is theology that's made very personal. God as he relates to us. God as he offers himself to you is the God that we're contemplating today in this psalm. So firstly, in verses 1 to 6, we're told by David that there are no secrets from God. The reality is that God already has the most intimate knowledge of each of us. This is not just those who belong to him. God also knows the heart and the mind of the Amazonian tribesman who's never even heard of him. God knows every human being intimately. Verses 1 to 4. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. So it's not just that God has cameras and microphones everywhere uh, through which he monitors us. It's much deeper than that. As we read there, he searches our motives and our thoughts. And it's not just as if he captures and stores all of that information like a giant computer, which he files it away. No, it's a personal knowing that God has of us and an active knowing in which he anticipates our words before we even say them. And he assesses us constantly. He discerns us. He sifts us. He winnows us and our ways. There's a prayer at the start of the communion services in the prayer book, which is a good prayer to pray when you come to do business with God. It says, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. We'd be foolish to come before God thinking that there's anything about us that he doesn't know. That's a good thing to say when you come before God. I'm open before you and I acknowledge that. Of course, there's lots about myself that I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's lots about you that you don't know. Um, sometimes I do or say or think things and, and afterwards I think, where did that come from? But God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows everything about us. And God's not just watching over us. He is also, in a sense, surrounding us. In verse 5, it says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So God is actively involved in each person's life, whether they like it or not. In Acts 17, Paul says to the pagan philosophers, He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
He is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And we're supposed to be responsive to that care that God gives to each of us. For a believer who's made peace with God through Jesus, the intimacy of God's knowledge and care will be a great comfort to us. For an unbeliever, it may not be so welcome. In Hebrews 4, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows everything. And that, of course, makes God unimaginably huge if he knows everything about each of us, the billions of us on this planet, so intricately. Verse 6, it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So the contemplation of this aspect of God should fill us with a sense of wonder. He is a very big God to be able to know and care for everyone with this level of intimacy. There are no secrets from God. And then associated uh, with the idea of God knowing everything is the idea of God being everywhere. So in verses 7 to 12, there is no escape from God. David's not necessarily wanting to escape from God here, but he knows that there is a natural human desire for independence from God. And he's asking the question, what if one were trying to find a place outside of God's influence? Well, it's impossible because you can't escape from God, is his conclusion. Verses 7 and 8, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So the heavens are as high as you can go and God is there. The depths are as low as you can go and God is there. Uh, the word the depths there uh, literally says Sheol, the place of the dead, uh, the underworld or Hades in the New Testament. God is there. In other words, even in death, you don't avoid God. Because God rules hell as well as heaven and everywhere in between. David says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So from east to west, there's no corner of the world that God doesn't reach, um, just as the prophet Jonah discovered in the Old Testament. And further, there are no conditions in which God becomes blind. There are no blind spots on God's radar. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Darkness is usually associated with godlessness and evil in the Bible. Some people seem to think that if they can ignore God, and create a sort of bubble of darkness around them, they'll become invisible to God and they'll fly under his radar. God won't be interested in them. If I avoid church, if I avoid Christians, if I don't think about God, if I stay in the spiritual darkness, then somehow God won't see me anymore. God won't touch me. But as David says here, God owns the darkness as well as the light. 
He operates in darkness just as easily as in the light. God owns it all and he is everywhere. So the bottom line here is that no place and no situation is outside God's influence or beyond God's reach. He knows every person intimately, wherever they may be. There is no escaping from God. Now, a person might say, well, why can't God just leave me alone? Why would he be interested in me? And what right does God have to put his fingers all over my life? Well, verses 13 to 18 show why God is unavoidably interested in each and every one of us. There is no independence from God. God is intimately involved with every human being because he is the author of every detail of each person's being. He has a personal plan for each and every human being, beginning before our beginning and ending in eternity. He has a plan for you, whoever you are, uh, which, is, which he is working out in your life. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. So that's taking us right back to before anyone knew we were coming into this world. The secret place, the depths of the earth. They are the places of uh, deepest concealment. Before our presence was even known in our mother's tummies. And then we were knit together by God. Our beings were woven together very deliberately by God, like a tapestry creating a picture to make us the people that we are. These verses obviously have implications for how we should think about the issue of abortion and the status of fetuses and babies in the womb. Uh, my wife and I have been blessed to have four children and for the second two, our doctor refused to call the unborn child a baby. He called it a pregnancy. When we were looking at the ultrasound, he would say, and you can see there is the pregnancy there. And I was thinking, no, it's not, it's not just a pregnancy. It's a baby. It's a little human being. It's not just a collection of tissue. But for our first two children, our doctor was a Christian. And he knew that God was forming each of those little people. And he was open to the wonder of what God was doing in creating this new human being. And so I remember once when we were looking at the ultrasound and he was explaining the development of the child, he concluded by saying, yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, quoting Psalm 139. And that's not just true in the general sense of how amazing it is that babies develop in the womb. It's true in the specific sense that God developed me to be me with a particular plan for me, even when I was in my mother's womb. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What's God doing as his hand guides our lives? Is he making it up as he goes along? Uh, is he just seeing what's going to happen and maybe give us a hand if we need it along the way? No, he is guiding us according to the plan that he has foreordained. There are no accidents with God. There is nothing random. His hand guides everything according to his plan. 
And the fact that God is doing this for each and every person should again fill us with wonder. Verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. We might ask, why should God's thoughts be precious to me, as David says here? Well, because isn't it amazing that God would think about me in such detail? The fact that God is thinking about me like this is amazing and precious. And of course, he's thinking about you in the same way. That means that whoever you are and whatever is going on in your life, you are not nothing and you are not nobody because God is concentrated on you. At the end of verse 18, there's a reference to when I awake. Does that mean that uh, whether we are awake or asleep, God is there with us? Or is it indeed saying that when we wake from death, we will find that God is still there with us? Either way, the general point is that uh, each of us is a deliberate creation of God's made for a specific personal plan that he has. And so he's not going to leave us alone, even for a second. All of this means that God has every right to search my heart and to know my thoughts and to keep his hand on me and my life because he made me for the purpose uh, that he gave me according to which he is guiding me. I am not my own creation, not in any sense. I am God's creation. And that's why there is no independence from God for anyone. He is our creator and our carer. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian welcomes this reality and submits to God and comes to know God's presence as that of a loving father. Whereas a non-Christian wants what they can't have, which is independence from God. And they either reject the idea of God or they resent him as a transcendental interferer and continue to say, this is my life. I'm sorry, but it's not your life. It's God's, whoever you are. The last section of this psalm reminds us that we need to make a choice which side we will be on. Verses 19 to 24, there should be no opposition to God. And David uses some harsh language here, but it would be wrong to understand this as personally hateful and spiteful. He's expressing zeal for God in the light of everything that he's just been saying. And he's pushing evil away from himself as decisively as he can because he knows that it's always tempting and convenient to make allies of the wicked. He says, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Yes, it sounds harsh, but he's not being self-righteous. He knows that he, he would readily side with the wicked if he didn't deliberately and utterly reject that path. And he wants God to be honoured, given what he's just been considering about God. The wonder of God's knowledge and the diligence of God's care 
and the extent of God's purposes for him and each and every person, it's intolerable that anybody should say, get lost God, this is my life. How could anyone deliberately dishonour the God who's intimately involved uh, in them like this? Or how could a person be bloodthirsty towards other human beings whom God also cares for in this way? If we know anything of the God who knows us so well, we will want to separate ourselves from all evil and wickedness. And rather than rejecting his involvement in our lives, we welcome him. David began the psalm by saying, You have searched me and you know me, which is true of everyone. But he ends the psalm by saying, Search me and know my heart, which is not an invitation that everybody gives to God. Having contemplated God in this psalm, David's taking down the signs that say, Keep out, and he's putting up the signs that say, Come in. He wants to cooperate with God's influence in his life. David's aware that there's not only wickedness around him, which he needs to reject, but there is also wickedness within him. And so the searching that David invites at the end of this psalm is not just God's quiet observation of him, but he's now inviting an active process of cleansing. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now think about those verses for a second and you'll realise this is not a small prayer to pray. It's asking for God to shine a light right into you and purge you at the deepest possible level. I was reading in the paper uh, the other day about an abandoned copper mine somewhere in China. Several years ago, six men entered those caves and not long after they became gravely ill and three of them died from a mystery illness. Later, uh, three scientists went into that cave to take samples. Um, The smell in there was unbearable. There were bats all over the ceilings of the caves. The floors were covered deep with bat droppings everywhere and there were rats and other creepy crawlies all over the place. The scientists took samples of the bat droppings and found viruses that had mutated into existence which no one had ever seen. Uh, Obviously the article was suggesting that maybe this is where COVID-19 or its ancestor had come from. The Bible says that our hearts are a little bit like that cave. Jeremiah 17 says that the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Mark 7 that our defilement as, as people doesn't come from the outside, it comes from inside, inside our hearts. And so our hearts are breeding grounds for all kinds of evil. Not even we know exactly what is in our hearts. We need to be suspicious of what might be living and breeding in there. But if we know God's power and his love, we will invite him to shine his light into our hearts. If my heart is is compromised and unclean, it will produce anxious thoughts that are not comfortable with God's interference. It will produce offensive ways that express my will rather than God's. Um, But this prayer says, search me and test me and lead me. 
Some people might balk at this. Why would I let God dig around in there and expose all my deep, dark secrets? Surely nothing good can come of that. But the thing is that as people who know that Jesus Christ died for us, we know that when the sin is exposed, it can be forgiven. So we can pray this confident in God's grace and mercy. It will be painful for you when God searches your heart and tests you. But the process is entirely positive because it is about cleansing and not condemning you. This is a prayer of absolute submission and total worship. Here is my heart, Lord. It's yours. Here are my thoughts. Here is my life. Make me completely yours, is what's being prayed. Why? Because God is worthy. He knows me better than I know myself. He's always there for me. He made me for his purpose. And it's only right that I do not ignore him or dishonor him by telling him to get lost. If you haven't yet taken the step of becoming a Christian, perhaps it's time to open yourself up to God, the God who has always been there, holding on to you. And perhaps it's time to receive his forgiveness through Jesus Christ and welcome him as your friend and your father. Invite him to search you and test you and lead you in the way everlasting. Or if you're already a Christian, why don't you surrender more of yourself to God? Ask him to go deeper and further into your heart and into your life and submit to that painful testing in which your anxious thoughts are challenged and your offensive ways are corrected. After all, none of us has secrets from God. None of us can escape from God. None of us is independent from God. And so since he's entirely good and loving, let's stop resisting him and surrender everything to him. I'll finish by praying a prayer that you can make your own prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating me and for your plans for me and for your interest in me. Your thoughts are precious to me because they show your care for me. Thank you for Jesus through whom my sins can be forgiven. So please come in, search me and know me at the deepest level, test me and lead me in the way everlasting from now on. Amen.